the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffle Podcast, episode 180. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now, on to the show. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. I have to apologize for the hammering in the background. It's real life happening over at your house. Right? The show oh. must go on. So much. So much life, especially yeah. with the hammering. You just never know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happening right now. Yeah. Well, we're just going to get into it today. Do you have anything you want to promote before we get into the show or anything going on you want to share? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you can uh, find out the latest if you sign up for my newsletter at theunruffle.com scroll to the bottom of the first page and you can sign up there. Um, I'm taking to clients for change your story. And that is an opportunity to work with me uh, one-on-one for four weeks. And we will work on um, something that you want to bring to life, even if it's um, a good stronghold in sobriety. Uh, I am finishing up a couple of clients this week and we've had, we moved the needle. I'm just going to say that the needle is always moved into, in the direction that you want to go. Um, so we get real work done and, um, I'm super proud of the work that we do accomplish, um, uh, working together. So you can sign up for that at also at my website, theunruffle.com. There's a bar at the top and you just click that and you can get all the information and some testimonials at the bottom. And that's it. Hmm. Uh, I love, again, I'm going to say it again. I just feel like I'm one of Sandra's biggest newsletter fans. I really love your newsletter. I look forward to it every week and I just really always get a little nugget out of there. So yeah, that is the best way uh, to kind of connect and then they can link to all of your stuff through there. I think it's really, it's really an awesome way to stay in touch with you and, and know what's going on. Um, for me, I launched my gray area 
drinking coaching um, on the new moon, which was last week. And um, I'm taking clients. I have room for six. And it was really great. I felt um, like putting it all together and doing the photos for it, Sandra, and doing self-portraits, which I just, I teach about self-portraits, but it's hard to take a selfie. You know, you've been doing this series where you've been taking photos of yourself and um, I know it's valuable work, and but it's, it's, it's not super comfortable, which means I got to keep doing it. Yeah. So I took some fun photos in the caftan that you made me for my 50th birthday. I know, I loved it. Uh, so much. It's so sexy. And so it just feels so good gliding over my skin. You know, mm-hmm. um, I shared with you, I have a friend that called it my silk suit, my, <laughs> my silk, my, my silk suit. And I was like, or caftan, but yeah, silk suit. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it feels silky and lovely and beautiful and I feel beautiful in it. So thank you. Um, so yeah, people, um, can go to my website. I'm going to be working with women who, um, you know, the want kind of bring out back some vibrancy and color back into their lives. And I'm going to call it the ray of light coaching program and do some artwork around that Sandra. And, um, yeah, I have three different packages. You can work with me three, six or 12 month contracts. And, um, that sounds all official, but we kind of make it uh, custom for, for the woman who's looking for that kind of support. So that's on my website at tammysellis.com. I also have a newsletter, which I try to switch up and make it different every week. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know how that's working, Sandra, but, um, I'm trying different things on for size and we get to do that because we're our own bosses. Um, being a creative entrepreneur, I get to try things on for size. So, um, you can find out about all about that stuff too, by signing up for my newsletter at tammysellis.com. All, All right. right. So let's get into this week. We have an awesome, lovely lady on, as we, as we usually do uh, on our podcast. <clears throat> Her name is Amy Eden Jollymore. And I get to know Amy in real life. And she's also part of our Unruffled community. And um, you want to do the beginning of her intro, Sandra, and then I'll kind of wrap it up at the end. Sure. Um, so Amy Eden Jollymore is a writer journal writing advocate and the author of the kind self healing book her book is a guide to finding and then unapologetically reclaiming your authentic self which includes journaling prompts and other writing activities amy has an mfa in writing from vermont college her work has appeared on websites and magazines including time out new york natural health Scholastic, PBS Online, Forbes, The Good Man, The Good Men Project, and Ravishing Ravishly. I can't, I can't say that word. Ravishly and others. Yeah, and you can follow Amy on Instagram at Amy underscore Eden underscore Jollymore, and visit her website with her name as well, AmyEdenJollymore.com. Um, this was a really wonderful episode. I think this is a topic of, um, we. We dove into being an adult child of an alcoholic, and um, it's not a conversation we've had yet on the podcast too much. And if we have, it's just been in little snippets, you know, just as part of someone's story. Um, we've, we haven't landed on it and talked about it in depth like we did with Amy, and she was very generous and, and kind of going there with us. So I really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I hope that you guys um, enjoy learning more about Amy. Yeah, enjoy. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. I'm so Good happy morning. to be here. Good Hi. Morning. 
So we are in a weird kind of, Amy, our guest today lives near me, um, and we are having a very weird post-apocalyptic-like um, sky. Mm, and... I've seen photos of the sky from lots of people. That's just unreal. Yeah. it's And Amy, you said it was disorienting yesterday, right? Yeah. It's, it, it's super disorienting. I feel that it's creates this really primal reaction, which I think the fires do as well. But to not be able to orient to the sun or a horizon line is, I think, super disorienting. And it made me feel like an animal that wanted to race out of the woods, like mm. escape. Yeah. It, yeah. It, was, it was kind of from the time I woke up, it was this kind of glow that was happening, Sandra, that a lot of people were saying it was like Mars or what they imagined like Mars to be like. It was very creepy and immediately my mood started shifting and what I started off really strong with a morning routine within an hour, I was kind of just out of it. And, um, and yeah, it was a really, it was a bizarre day and, and it is a little bit that way too, again today. So we're in Northern California um, and for our listeners that are listening. And so it's kind of strange. It's kind of a weird time up here for sure. It's um, otherworldly. Yeah, definitely. yeah. I'm just, I've, my heart goes out. And I just, since we're talking about stuff like this, <laughs> it's a little strange here in Texas too. We had a cold front mm-hmm. and it's 50 something degrees outside, which is just completely unreal for Texas in September. When I was growing up, so I'm 51, that's no secret for anyone. Um, but when I was growing up, I was born and raised in Texas. Um, September's were always cool. You know, we always experienced fall like weather. And then as the decades have gone on, it's just global warming, you know, it's just gotten warmer and warmer. And we usually don't get our first cold snap until sometimes late October, November. And, um, Mm. yeah, so it's really strange here too, in a different kind of way, but, um, yeah, it's wow. (laughs) Lots of, of tumultuous things happening this year. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, that's just, just, um, I know we like to talk about the weather at the top of this on us. We just, covered you know, it. I know. We, we want to get, we want to get that basis going. But it's beyond <laughs> just weather, right? It is global right. warming and it's, I'll mm-hmm. fight anyone on that. It's, it's um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it goes beyond just, um, uh, you know, something superficial, a chatty, superficial chat about the weather. Well, when I talked to Natalie yesterday, um, she said the sky is the color of Trump. It really really was. It was like this orange hue that you couldn't quite, and when she said that, I mean, I laughed so I didn't cry. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. Um, But Amy, you live near me. I got to meet Amy at a clothing swap, Sandra, which I think you would really totally dig, um, at my neighbor's house. And uh, she walked into the house and just had this beautiful kind of specialness about her that I knew as soon as she like stepped one foot into the door, her whole being. And I slowly was kind of watching her and she was helping style me at one point. And I was like, I want to know this lady. I was just really drawn to you, Amy. And I didn't know what that connection was or what that would be. Um, More was revealed as time went on. And um, 
I don't remember if you reached out or I reached out. I think I might've reached out after I read something of yours um, on Instagram, uh, part of your story. And so I appreciate you being here today and helping us out um, in this way. Oh, I, thank you. Yeah. I remember that clothing swab well. <laughs> and and I, there's so much creative. Clothing swaps are like dress up, but grown up style. It brings together so many aspects of things I've loved over the years. And, and, I, and the spirit is often... I want to, it feels like goddess spirit, sort of like, oh, try this. You can, and you're exposed to clothes that you wouldn't ordinarily pick because it removes those categories you see at stores. And you have other women saying like, you should try this or like throw that scarf on. And you end up walking out with five layers of all <laughs> mix matched clothes and, you know, look like you're about to go clubbing in New York City. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think you had me try on a dress I wasn't going to normally try on. And then I just loved it. And yeah, but you walk, you do, you kind of get out of your comfort zone a little bit like, well, you know what? I'm going to try to make that work because your options are limited. You know? Yeah. And it's all free. Like you just put it in your bag and, and say, bye ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You walked out with like a bag full. You weren't there very long. It's like you came in like a whirlwind, a little, like a, a, just kind of swoop through the house and your energy. And then you laughed and I was like, I asked my friend who hosted the part. I'm like, who was that? She's like, oh, I think I think you guys would get along well, is what she said. And I was, and that's all she said, really. She didn't tell me much more about you, other than, yeah, I think you guys would really get along. I was like, oh, okay. So, so I've never um, been to a clothing swap. Can you believe that? I've never I, been. To no, one. I haven't. I think I, I I don't know what my resistance is to the clothing swap. I don't know if it's some kind of. I get a little like scarcity kind of thing about clothing and my clothing in particular, <laughs> like I'm okay with just dropping some things off at a thrift, you know, at a, you know, at the Goodwill or whatever, passing things on that way. And then I don't really see who's picking it up or buying it, but I don't know what it is about. <laughs> I have some scarcity. Yeah. I, I need, huh. this is, this is a therapy topic for sure. So, <laughs> oh, Oh, their stuff comes up. <laughs> clothing swaps. I it's this is it's a rich. There's a lot. Like there's a lot you can mine because you know a woman might turn to you and say, "My mother would never let me wear this." Right. And then you get on to talking about how you know, like I got my, my stepmom. We'd go and buy five shirts every school year. She's like, "Why would you need more?" And I'm like, "Uh, right, <laughs> right." <laughs> Yeah. And the, and you're right. The kind of female connection that's happening there, it is different. It's very, um, maybe it is motherly in some way or sisterly, just kind of um, helping the other women. Yeah. Kind of uh, try something, get out of their comfort zone and, and um, kind of go for it with some outfits. Like really, you're, you're really the whole hot pink trench coat. You think that's going to work for me? Right. Yes. And I, how could it not? <laughs> have worked in that capacity. You know, I've worked at a, I had a friend that owned this beautiful boutique and I worked for her for a couple of years and I loved it. Like I loved, you know, dressing up women and I've styled photo shoots and stuff like that part. I love that. I totally dig that too. So I think it's just something about 
I'm watching somebody put my clothes on. I don't know what it is. Yeah. yeah. Explore that. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, because you're not bringing your vintage Stevie Nicks t-shirt to the uh, swap. That's right. Not, I know that. Right. <laughs> and going, oh my God, that looks so much better on you than it does. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I want to work with you and say, okay, let's do a, st- like a three-step plan. Right. You attend a clothing swap without bringing clothes, which is allowed. Yeah. And just, you come, you don't bring clothes, you don't take clothes until everything's been taken and you just be there and you soak in the, you know, the energy. And then step two is you write out, you know, I will only bring clothes. I have, it's only clothes you've fallen out of love with. <laughs> And nothing smelly with holes, but like that you fall in and that you're willing to see on other women. It's so, yes. and then step three is your first swap. Mm. I think this is going on the vision board or something. I clearly need to do this. I have some things I need to work through. Well, we haven't had one in a while. I mean, I think you had one at your house was maybe the last one before all of this hit. I can't remember. And I wasn't able to come and I was so bummed. I was like, oh, I wanted to go to her house and see it. Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I went just down a little rabbit hole there, but yeah. That was a fun fun discussion though. (laughs) (laughs) So Amy, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit you know, what we talk about on the show is creativity and sobriety. But at the top of the show, we always ask our listeners, you know, kind of how you came to the decision to quit drinking so that they can get to know you a little bit better before we kind of jump into talking about um, your book and other things. So could you share with us how you came to that decision and what that looked like for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cut to the chase. (laughs) (laughs) I, um, and you know, in my sobriety, isn't a secret. This is the first time I've talked formally and identified as a sober woman, although I've from time to time mentioned it. And I think I had quoted something that Holly Whitaker had said on Instagram, and that was your cue. You're like, oh, hey. Right. And and you reached out. Um, But I've had it as part of like titles or little, you know, subtitles that describe me and you know, it'll say sober and then that disappears for a while and it comes back, which is not a reflection of whether I was not sober or not, just my comfort level, you know, wanes. Anyway, mm-hmm. so thanks for the opportunity to to talk about it in this capacity, especially married with creativity. Yeah. Um, so when I stopped drinking and abstaining from alcohol, that was March of 2015. Um, and I've been sober from alcohol for four and a half years. And other, all other drugs as well. When I say, when I'm being specific about sober from alcohol, it's because food is another issue. Um, but so four and a half years, and that's accumulated in two batches. So um, that 2015 through almost the end of 2018, I didn't drink. Uh, and then I spent nine months, so that was what, late 2018, mid-2019, drinking again um, to learn to learn that let's see toxic work environments aren't for me mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that if I'm gonna have a like good romantic relationship it's probably gonna have to be sober those were the big takeaways and they were huge mm. 
So when you first quit though, was there a, was there an impetus for that or to just kind of, was it an experiment or were you just removing it to see, you know, kind of how things were going on for that first, for the first leg of it? The reason had to do with an autoimmune disease diagnosis, mm-hmm. actually. Okay. Um, and so I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm-hmm. So it means my immune system is attacking my thyroid and which regulates so much of the body. And I was really fatigued and I was just dragging and lethargic for years. And most people who have this and other autoimmune diseases often say it takes three or so years to be diagnosed because it's so hard to pinpoint. Um, and anyway, so what I did was I overhauled my diet because I, you know, I try to approach everything very naturally. And so that meant uh, quitting sugar, quitting alcohol, uh, eating kind of a paleo um, anti-inflammatory diet. So, so it's not like I embarrassed myself for the final time at a party, right. you know, that I woke up with vomit in my hair or with leaves still stuck to my sweater, which is one of my stories. So it's, so what I quickly saw <laughs> was that drinking really didn't suit me. Mm. So even though I quit for dietary reasons to try to reverse this di- disease was, which was my original hope. Um, I started to notice how it wasn't drinking wasn't working for me and how I was feelings were bubbling up to the surface. Mm, yeah. And, uh, and when I stopped, I just stopped. So I didn't go into a program. So I was abstaining from alcohol, but recovery for me, like the, the work, the work was when I started looking at food and there's no way I would have uncovered or seen that I had, that I was, my sickness was being expressed through food habits if I had still been drinking. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're inextricably linked for sure. Um, you know, and I, the, as a creative person, like who doesn't take authority figures too seriously, um, I love the rebelliousness of being sober you know, mm-hmm. sure. um, thumbing my nose at the establishment and the alcohol industry, spending billions on advertising to lull women into drinking and all of that. Like, I'm, I love the awakeness mm. of, of sobriety. But, it, you know, and when you, you mentioned reaching out to me, you saw I had posted something on Instagram. Um, you somehow in the asking of of, you know, I think you had said something like, hey, are you, you know, do you mind my asking, are you sober, sister? Like, it, it created, it illuminated something for me, because what I noticed was, I hesitated. Even with the four and a half, you know, years, and I, I think at that time, it was three and three quarters or something, years of not drinking. I was like, ah, and immediately it was clear to me, food was the next door. Like the real. So anyway, and so now, and I, I'm, I am very much in a program, a 12-step program, working through that and looking at uh, you, you removing foods that I was compulsive with, uh, the sugar I was, I had a very addictive relationship to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and like, yeah. Oh, Amy, I was just going to ask, did you have any models of, 
of, you know, toxic relationships with alcohol and or recovery in your family, family of origin? Generations and generations of them. Yeah. Mm. Did that in, did that influence your decisions at all? Yes. Yeah. In, in funny ways that, yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I, I knew around the time, I think it was 12 or 13 was when my stepmother, and this is, I was at the time, I was born in Minnesota in Duluth, Minnesota, but uh, at the time we, we had moved to California. So we're in Oakland, California. My stepmom hands me these pamphlets that say Alateen on them. Mm. And, and was like, your dad's an alcoholic. You got to go to these meetings. And I, the concept, and for me, the concept just, I never wrapped my head around. I didn't get it. I read the pamphlets. I went to the meetings. It just really didn't sink in. So I was very aware. So, but what did sink in was you can never drink. Like that was the message I got. So it was terrifying. So, and, and I, I did drink and I was always terrified because I was concerned that like, is this the drink that turns the key or is this the drink that's going to turn the key? Mm. Wake up with like, it felt like worms in my stomach and so anxious. And then, then there was this time in my life I decided like, okay, I'm going to learn to drink. And I'm going to drink this glass of wine without worrying about becoming an alcoholic. So this is weird. Like, and, it, it, and it's, um, and I have a lot of compassion for that self because I think I, it, that part of me needed to make that journey. Cause in, in that, at that time in my twenties, I was still suffering from this great fear of becoming an alcoholic. Right. So I needed, needed to, see, yeah. Yeah. You needed to do your own research. Right. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I can imagine, you know, waking up after one drink, two drinks, you're not, you're not waking up in jail. You're like, okay, right, right, well, right. <laughs> yeah, you have to come. I think you're right. I mean, we talk about modeling solutions for our kids. And while that is so important, I think they, yeah, they have to do their own um, exploring as well. Yeah. Find yeah. out what their limitations are or, you know, and make their own choices. It's how we gain autonomy, I think. It is. And I think especially, I mean, if only we could, you know, impart knowledge to our children by right. saying, do this, don't do that. And it, if only it were that simple. If only it worked that way. <laughs> right. If only I Wait, had it followed. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> No, and we forget it's like amnesia too. I look at my husband sometimes and I go, Did you ever do what your parents told you to do right. when you were a teenager? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, just ugh. so there's a, some fear there for you, right? As a teenager. So your stepmom um obviously was trying to just trying to get you some help, right? Like going like, oh, this might be helpful for Amy. Um and but was her way okay? Did that work for you or did it just instill a lot of fear? It sounds like fear was um, part of that. Well, I think her intention was positive for sure. Um, and I can imagine that when, uh, when my dad at that point decided to uh, work on his, on his uh, drinking, um, and he, and just as a side note, like he's been abstinent from alcohol for 30 plus years. Mm. 
So, but I can, I can imagine like putting myself in her shoes. She had been through just the ringer by that point mm. and how excited she must've been like, okay, he's dealing with this. And then like, okay, you got to Alateen. I'm going to Al-Anon. Like, right. We're, we're all going to get on board know? here. Yeah. yeah. We're all signing up for this. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. it was, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't like, think about this, but I, I mean, I don't know about you, but it really, there's. It, the whole, the 12 steps and all of that, or just even alcoholism as a quote unquote disease is very high. It's like a concept and it's, and it takes time to really get it. So even though I went to meetings and I think that was a positive, although at one, I mean, at one ACOA or yeah, well then yeah, one Alateen con convention, I dropped acid with a friend and we got high. I'm like, so something mm. was not... <laughs> Right. right. There was a disconnect there. Yeah. It was, it was like, and, and we were all together and we weren't at home. So that was like the best, you know, anytime we could not be at home was always the best. So there, and we had community, but, it, and I don't mean to come down on Alateen, like, oh, some kids did drugs. So therefore it's a, the conventions are a failure. I just think it's ironic. That's <laughs> yes. I, teens are, <laughs> teens are going to be teens, right? Exactly. <laughs> it, yes. And I sometimes wondered, like, why didn't they, like, we told them we're steaming our clothes when they came into our room. We're, That's and I'm hilarious. Like, how did they not, like, you know, that stuff stinks, right? right? So how did they not, why didn't they throw us out? Like, why didn't they send us home? Right. And when I think about why they didn't, I feel just so much love. It's like, yeah, that's, because mm. home's probably not this is probably a better place to just stay for the weekend. Mm. So I, I, you know, it, I was terrified. I mean, anxiety has just been in my bloodstream forever. And, and that was, you know, this fear that like I could become something by sipping something was terrifying. So I did have to like, Sandra, that's a good, I had to see. And I, and I got to a point where I'm like, Oh, I actually went out and had a couple of drinks with friends and didn't worry. And in the morning when I would also worry very much like, oh, what have I done? I just chose not to and did something else. So it, it, and that was a positive experience. And there were also times I quit because here's the thing. My mother died drunk. Her mother died of cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. My dad's father died of uh, of I'm not sure what, but was it was like the on the lawn classic like founding AA member style where you think of like on the lawn kind of guy where they took three of the brothers to bring him in in the morning type of thing, mm. um, and then on and on previous generations. So, so my and I have my mom's one year chip from getting sober. So I know that is such a symbol of like I know how fragile it can be. I think sobriety can also be really strong and steady, but it's not, it's work. And so I have her chip and that reminds me that, you know, she died in a, in a drunk coma and she was fighting for sobriety, but it's not, it's not easy. Yeah. Thank you, Amy, for that, for, you know, just talking about that, because I think a lot of, on the show, I don't think we've really gotten into I know we haven't gotten in too deep about having, um, you know, parents that share this disease and, um, or if you believe in the disease model, I know, I know not everybody does. And I'm on the fence about that too, but I know that it definitely runs in families and, and, and there is a, there is a link. And so to have that, to have that knowledge, 
to lose your mom. How old were you when you lost your mom to this? Oh, um, she was, I think I had just, I was 30. Mm-hmm. She was 53. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty close math because she was about oh, 19 or so when she, 19 or 20 when she had me. Yeah. 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 But she was, I was four when she walked out of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is, I'm just so curious then, what does acceptance look like for you and working through that? Oh, yeah. Acceptance of what part? I mean, yeah. Acceptance of the mom that you you had. Yeah. It looked like, well, what does it look like now rather than, you're not really asking like, how did I get to it? But yeah, the, oh, it looks like, um, it looks like being able to have photos of her around my home uh, Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, I would try from time to time to have photos out. It was too evocative. So it looks like that looks like having, you know, like an eagle feather close to one of her photos and kind of, um, it looks like being in dialogue with her sometimes um, in my journal or in prayer. And when I'm, you know, trying to cultivate a connection to uh, kind of the mother, the universal Mm -hmm. mother. Um, Mm -hmm. It looks like talking about her and it looks like writing about her. And allowing much of my writing to be about mothering and her and yeah, yeah. Mm, that's beautiful. Do you, do you feel um, you've just reached a, a year, you're past a year of your um, not drinking um, for this yeah, last right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so do you feel, do you feel um, like you understand her more in any way in terms of how hard mm. these things can be? Did it bring up more compassion for her having struggled with this? Or how does that, I know it's got to be super layered, Amy. Um, it is, it is, it is. Thanks for acknowledging that. Yeah. And you said, right, a year of, um, uh, of sobriety. Right. And I said food sobriety, but that's not, that's October. So yeah, <laughs> just sorry. That's okay. Uh, but, um, but, but it was a year for not drinking, right? In August? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it, I feel a lot of compassion for what she struggled with. I wish she had. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, well, let's see. I wish she'd, well, I wish she'd made it. I yeah. wish that she had, she also had to balance, uh, contend with um, bipolar disorder. And I'm, I, my guess is that that, came first and drinking was as it is for so many people who have uh, manic depression or bipolar disease, like trying to regulate the highs with alcohol is really common. Um, And when I learned how challenging it is to mother while, while navigating um, bipolar disease and drinking, yeah, my heart just broke open. It's like, okay, okay. Because I, I had anger for so many years, just like, you know, you did this to me, you should have been able to mother me. Uh, and understanding what she was up against helped to see that, uh, appreciate her struggle. 
and looking at the time in which she grew up, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, was there weren't the tools there. There was not tools <sighs> for mental health, right? No, no, I and such have, stigma. Yeah. Yeah. I have a father that was, you know, kind of, he didn't, he, he didn't drink. He may have been one of those you know, when I learned about the concept of dry drunk, which is not my favorite term, but it really um, did it did describe him. It was just un untended to mental illness. Um, yeah, with just no resources, but just accepting that part gave me so much more compassion for um, him. Yeah. Right. It's so easy to think, well, they could have done this, but they didn't, if they had, a, you know, dot, 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 only if they had the resources we have. Right. Uh, and she was a, she was an incredibly creative person. She was a painter. Um, she did beadwork. She, um, so she, she didn't work and she lived, she lived, you know, in trailers on land in Minnesota and Wisconsin. For a time, she lived on an Indian reservation when, and did a lot of um, medicine woman work. And she made her own um, costume for the powwows with like really intricate beadwork. She, um, I think, hunted. I have this picture of her plucking a pheasant, and I know somebody shot it. So it's, <laughs> yeah, she was with this like Afghan on her lap that she had knitted. I mean, she was very much in that vein of like, off the grid, no shame. Um, you know, I bathe in the, this little kid's swimming pool. It's, it, and creating and trying to sell her wares and also manage everything that was not right with her head and, and her own eating stuff, which the last weekend I spent with her, I saw her, a three-day weekend, I saw her consume only frozen Diet Coke slushies and popcorn. Mm. Um, so, you know, in regulating mental health, I, you know, it involves a lot of things, you know, whether it's medication and exercise, but also like diet. It's so, very much about nutrition, right? Or right. Uh, the, right. You know, how we're learning too that, that, that everything kind of starts in the gut and that wasn't information. I don't think that was available um, then either, no. even if no. you know, she would have chosen I know if I could oh go back and like just feed her sauerkraut mm-hmm. <laughs> like eat this fermented cabbage and I you know I I worked with a healer at one point who who got me thinking about the idea that a lot of the healing that I'm doing not only heals forward like my son and next generations if they come and but but sort of if you imagine kind of the DNA strand or, or the spiritual DNA strand also heals back into the past. And right. I love thinking that the work I'm doing is somehow healing, you know, cause time and depending upon how you think about time is like healing in the past too. Like right. somehow for the generational trauma is what it's called. But yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I'm, I'm not doing this for her. I don't think that would work as motivation, but I, I love the notion that it is carrying backwards as well. Some of the healing effects. Like these, the, the byproduct of your work mm-hmm. that you're doing. Um, Cause you're a mom and I'm sure. Yeah. I think about that too. Sandra's a mom, like about um, our children. Right. 
what we want them to carry forward and what's not in our control, but um, <clears throat> yeah, modeling for our kids um, what I wish for him, you know. My son just got mm. a shirt yesterday or the day before. He likes to order things and get them in the mail. So he has like his little uh, uh, checking account, <laughs> with, oh, you know, with, with some sum, a summer job. And so he's been doing his own ordering of things. And so he always wants to get the mail. And so he gets the mail and then he's kind of sheepish and he's out and doing his school. And I go out there and he looks kind of like, am I going to get in trouble for something is what the look was on his face. And I was looking, I'm like, what? And I see the t-shirt that he's wearing and it says, fuck drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I go, huh? I go, I, I like your shirt. He goes, do you really? I go, yeah, I do actually. <laughs> I said, I don't know if you're supposed to be wearing that on Zoom. That's right. Thing I would, I think that's why he was looking kind of like, what's she gonna say? And he right. goes, and he was like, he was like, yeah. And I said, I said, you know, alcohol is a drug, right? And he goes, I do know that. You've told me that. I'm like, okay. I go, yeah, I like your shirt. And I just walked out. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. But um, yeah, I, that conversation, you yeah, know, it was fun. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with you, Amy. I like to pull back and, and, and get the, you know, zoom out and see that, um, see where I am in the context of, of lineage and, um, and look at those patterns, you know, and just kind of see how disrupting ones that had carried on for generations, what that could possibly mean going forward. Yeah. I yeah. almost like see it as some, yeah, you're right, like a changing colors both ways or something. Mm, I like that. With a yeah. little glitter or like right. <laughs> pixie dust, little sparkle. Yeah. And the, and also the, the pulling back, I like how you're saying like zoom out because it, it's less, there's less ego. It's less, less self-centered too. And we see ourselves more as part of a greater whole and dynamic too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the concept of they did the best they could do? Oh, <laughs> Great question, Sandra. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know if you know this. I gave a talk with that very title, hacking the phrase, they did the best they could. Mm. Um, I think, so looking at it semantically, I think it, it's a very, it's, they did the best they could, has a lot about them in it. And very little about, as I think about it, like in my family, the family systems in which I grew up, the, the child of the alcoholics. So um, I think it's a terrible phrase because of those semantics, because it doesn't include the person that was affected yeah. by them not doing or doing the best that they could. Yeah. <laughs> However, yeah. that was defined. Yeah. And they and they they didn't do their best because the be they weren't able to. So so it's because I mean, but I get I get what it means. I think it's a terrible phrase. I think it it needs to be replaced with something else. So I think we end up using it and passing it along because it just has this precedent. But um, I think it's meant to be this soothing, like they did the best they could, but. How about they, they did a really imperfect, unskillful job, and this is what you're left with. So here are your choices, you know, 
because I, I feel like when you tell someone who suffered trauma or whatever it is, like they did the best they could, it's not really listening to that person. And so I think that, yeah, mm-hmm. it's being dismissive of the effect that what they did had on, on, yeah, on, on everyone else under that roof. Yeah. It's like, well, forgive them because they tried their best. And it's like, well, yeah, it, it, dismissive is a great, great word for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I've, so yeah, I'm, thanks for asking that question. I'm Amy, I'm glad you have, uh, you know, talked about this. I, I have used that phrase to kind of get through my forgiveness of my parents. Um, which is I, okay. Which is I, okay. <laughs> right. But I do feel like it is compartmentalizing it so, so that I can move on and, and do my healing work. Like I, there's work to be done still, I'm sure, um, definitely with my mother. Um, but in order for me to kind of move forward with my steps and to kind of move forward with some of the other work that I was doing, I had to kind of put it on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost like a placeholder, that phrase. So now that you guys are kind of dissecting it, that it's about them, like, yeah, and they had their own traumas and their own things from their family history and the alcoholic grandfather and abuse, you know, all of these things that um, I thought, well, you know what, that, I thought that, yeah, she did the best, he, both of them did the best they could based on how they were, were raised. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact of some things that happened to me. And, um, I'm not factoring myself into that, I guess. So that's kind of what you're saying, I think. Like it doesn't acknowledge the person that got hurt because of their behavior or lack of judgment or um, is that, is that fair to say? Like it's not, it's just about them. Right. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. And it, and I, and I, I mean, if it worked for you that then it, then it worked. I mean, I think context is important too, because oftentimes it's a therapist or somebody who means well, who's using the phrase, but Mm -hmm. But I think that, but that's interesting. But I think the flip is sort of like you got the shaft and now what? You know, it's sort of almost like saying, making what you, the replacement phrase, uh, you focused. Mm-hmm. And, and looking or, but, but again, you know, if it worked, it worked. So mm-hmm. I think when it's problematic is when somebody who's trying to just say like, hey, they did the best they could. You know, it's like, well, how do you, yeah, yeah, like, how do you mean that? Let's, Mm -hmm. let me know how you mean that because it's a popular phrase and are you really listening? Right. Is there deep listening happening to why, yeah, maybe there's not deep listening. It's kind of almost like that spiritual bypassing a little bit, right? They did the best they could on. And then you don't get to experience the rage or the, or, you know, how upset you are, how it affected you. Okay. Yeah, right. because, right, because people who, yeah, like good people forgive others, <laughs> you know, it puts it on like, you again. Yeah, like you got it. And here's the other thing is, is uh, there are different levels of like trauma and, and horrible stuff that happens with people when they're kids. So it's also like, well, wait, what are you using this phrase? Who, what did they experience? Because if you have somebody who was, you know, there was incest or there was, you know, like, violence and you're like they did the best they could it's like whoa 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 back up that no that phrase isn't used for somebody who experienced that kind of stuff where do you know what i mean it's sure. like sure mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Certain levels. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like garden variety, like imperfect childhood, I I would say. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, I, I never, I honestly had, was 45 when I heard that phrase for the first time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard that phrase before. And, but what it did for me, I think was just give me a, it opened a tiny speck of a, of a window to look at, you know, my father in a different context. Um, it, 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 I got out of being a victim for just a second to see, okay, wait, you're right. He was abused. I bet his father was abused too. Um, uh, that was never, you know, none of that, none of that violence was ever, ever unpacked, addressed, acknowledged, nothing. I mean, it's, it's actually no surprise that, 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 you know, virus continued. Um, Mm, yeah. So it did give me a little bit of insight. Um, I noticed on your blog or your website that you talked about the ACE test and I've taken that and um, I can't remember my score, but, you know, I think it was significant. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. But um, that's a great way to start looking at stuff because I think people who have experienced ACEs and that's adverse childhood experiences uh there's it's easy to think it's normal and i think it's a great way of framing and seeing like oh wow that stuff that happened that actually you know adds up and it actually means that i have potential for some health issues like you know things like people who have a high a score and a score above a certain point tend to have um be more inclined to have sex at a younger age, uh, have autoimmune dis- diseases, issues with heart and liver health. Like it, you know, and that's really helpful to know, but it's also helpful to know that those experiences, whether it was a, you know, violence at home or a parent committing or attempting suicide or, you know, uh, different types of abuse, it's good to know that that's like, puts you in a category where you need some healing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that it's not par for the course. Cause I think when it is par, like normal for you that you normalize it and then forget that that actually puts you in a special category. Well, I'm going to, I'm really bad at segues, Amy. I'm just going to let you know that right now. Sandra already knows, <laughs> but I'm, yeah, do it. I'm, I'm also looking awkward. at the time and I'm just, <laughs> trying to, I want to marry this all together, but yeah, I'm not, that's not my strong suit. Um, you wrote a really beautiful book. And you are, I think you're a very creative person. I know we had a conversation last night about, you know, what is creative and and what does that mean? And um, I don't know that you saw yourself, maybe how I see you, um, but I definitely think you're a creative person. And you wrote a beautiful book called The Kind Self-Healing Book, Raise Yourself Up with Curiosity and Compassion. And can you tell our listeners, like, what was the impetus for writing this book and putting this out into the world? Yeah, yeah. And it's... um, I think 
thank you for calling it beautiful. I the illustrations that were drawn, mm. like every illustration in the book was hand drawn by a local artist here in Petaluma named Marla Peterson. And in fact, I have a print of hers right here above my writing desk. So do I. I and have an original. Yes. Ooh, what it, what is yours? Uh, Silence is golden and has glitter. Yeah, glitter. <laughs> mine mine says trust your gut. Mm. And it has these really interesting shapes floating around it. Um, but anyway, she she uh, drew numerous illustrations for the book, so it, I think that makes it really beautiful. I so um, when I I got my um, master's in writing, and I was thinking like, okay, now I launched my writing career, and it didn't quite go that way. Um, and at the time, blogs were this is around two thousand one ish. Um, the, you know, blogs were kind of a new thing. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know what to do. Let's try this type pad software stuff and start a blog. Um, I was in this small group of women who would meet and set goals. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do that. And I, I didn't know what I was going to write about. I knew I didn't want to just diary. Um, but uh, so I thought, well, let me write about the issues of children of alcoholics and explore that and share some of my own discoveries and whatnot. So that blog is called Guess What Normal Is. And it's a great name. I wrote I wrote well guess what normal is is one of the one of the characteristics of adult children of alcoholics, which is that adult children of alcoholics guess at what normal behavior is. Mm. Um, it's part of that very untethered feeling and anxiety that comes along with it. So guess what normal is is a blog I wrote for 10 years. Mm. And, and when there was a point at which there were, you know, active readers and we would interact and I just received over and over questions that ended up turning into this book, which were, you know, how did you get from realizing the, the way in which you grew up wasn't, was you know, kind of imperfect, messed up and is causing issues with you having relationships. How did you get from that to healing it? So the book was an answer to what readers were asking for and an opportunity for me to give structure to that. Because, you know, you just do the journey. You don't really, I wasn't making notes like, oh, here's how it worked. I never thought of it. I never looked back through the rear view mirror. So it was a great opportunity to do that. And the Kind Self Healing book has four parts and there's this investigation investigation of self and some processing and uh, in setting intention about healing. And then there's a whole section. The second section is de dedicated to feelings, understanding what, what they are. Cause if you grow up the child of an alcoholic in that kind of family system, and when I say family system, even if your parents were teetotalers and their parents drank, you very likely still, exhibit some of the characteristics of don't talk, don't think, don't feel. That's the family code. So then you got to learn how to feel and understand the difference between needs and wants and those sorts of things. And then part three is about self-sabotage. It's an entire section dedicated to it because of my readers, that was their favorite topic. <laughs> and uh, Ooh, Tell so, me more. Tell me more about that. Well, I, I think that so self-sabotage is, you know, am I you know, oh, I did it again. Like, why didn't I finish that project? Why can't I focus? Why can't, you know, am I self-sabotaging? And, 
you know, you're also a word and language girl and Sandra, I'm just getting to know you. So you may be as well, but I love when I want to understand something, I pick it apart and I look at the semantics and, you know, I think self-sabotage is something we often worry we're doing because we know it's scary and it's bad, but we don't, I don't believe in self-sabotage actually. I think, I think, you know, if someone were to say to me, I think I'm self-sabotaging, I'd say, okay, what is it? And they say, well, I wanted to do this project and I'm just not making it happen. And I would say, you know, it's one of two things. Either you haven't broken it out into a plan, so you haven't set yourself up for success. You just want to do it and expect it to pour out of your fingers without planning, or you don't really want to do it. Right. That's what I say <laughs> right? to, to women that I coach. Yeah. Like you're not right. into it. It's either an execution <laughs> problem or, right, it's you have no desire to do it. So let's move on to something else. Yeah. And it's so empowering. So much mm-hmm. more empowering than like, oh, am I self-sabotaging? Like, I, honestly, I, I haven't yet talked to someone who, who was a true, was truly self-sabotaging. You know, there's always something else going on. So I think it's a good place to start mm-hmm. and then ask. But yeah. So, yeah, I don't believe in it. It sounds like that you found, right. You found solutions for yourself and then you were able to put that all together, package that so that other women or men, maybe your audience as well can, can use that, that, that same, those same solutions. Right. It's exactly, it's this, what, this is what worked for me. Um, this is how I think about it. And if it works for you as well, that's incredible. Yeah. And is this, would you call that, I mean, do you still use the same tools? I mean, is this a work in progress always? Mm, I do. Yeah, I do. And it's, I love how humbling it is to open up my own book and go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to, to let's (laughs) go back to number one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I use it. And I probably always, I mean, that's you know, the other humbling thing is it's probably, yes, it's a life's, life's work. I wouldn't want any other journey, but there's, oh yeah. And I think a lot of tools, I mean, it's like saying like, oh, I don't need to meditate anymore. It's like, well, yeah, I'm always going to need to, because it's not a, it's not a buy once <laughs> use forever. Yeah. Right. And I guess I asked that because, and, and, and that's obvious to me too, but I think that's, there's so many women that, not so many, but I know women, I work with women who feel like that there's some place that they will arrive to yes. <laughs> where it'll just be yeah. easy. And yes, there are days that are still effortless, but there's no arrival. <laughs> Yeah. It's this cumulative, cumulative work and growth and it's just incremental and small um, and significant though, right? As, as time is going on. I think for me, that's why the stacking up of days, I know some women don't count or don't want to do that. But for me, it was, it's just like these tiny little increments when I, when I look at a day count on my phone and I'm like, oh, it's been 2000 days. Wow. That I've made a shift from the old me to this new way of living. And something about that satisfies me. Um, yeah, Amy, part four of the Big book, numbers. part four of the book, um, seems like a really awesome part of the book. <laughs> um, it is. And it's the biggest part. It's yeah, like the giant talk hug. About that. It's yeah. about caring for you 
and has lots of things in here that really, of course, the gratitude rang out to me, but you have a chapter on, um, on parenting yourself. And um, I like that idea that yeah. we get to, we get to do that now, perhaps what wasn't done for us or in a way that, that um, we finally get to do because we're adults. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that section? Yeah, I would love to. I, yeah, and the gratitude practice and develop, coming up with a spiritual practice. And there's um, the, and the part on gratitude offers like there's space with the, you know, Marla's illustrations to actually write gratitude. And then I provide an example because I think oftentimes, I mean, it's very much a workbook. Um, oftentimes, if someone's not familiar with gratitude, it's easy to misunderstand it as something you say at a Thanksgiving feast. Um, and sometimes there's uncertainty about what it's okay to be grateful for, what you're supposed to list. So I think it takes a while to get into the groove and be like, okay, I can be grateful for this rosebud or the, the leaf. I can be grateful for people. I can be, um, there's, um, the self parenting and the kind being a kind, uh, finding your kind inner self parent for me was, was huge. And it's a source. I, I apologize in advance. I have Wanda Honeybelly on my lap now. She may meow. <laughs> um, uh, when for me growing up with that code of don't talk, don't think, don't feel, and don't have needs and don't have boundaries. I was really adrift and, and struggled with relationships because I tried to have them without asserting needs and without really feeling my feelings. So I developed uh, an entity within myself, you know, an imaginary, like I visualize this um, kind, wonderful, you know, robe wearing <laughs> um, kind of Stevie Nicks like parent inside and it's just me talking to myself, but it's like, you know, you've had enough at this party. Why don't you go home? You know, something that it, it, like an ideal parent would say, like, well, it seems like you're, you're going back, you're going to have some snacks now and you've already had enough. You're not hungry. So why don't you go home? Why don't you say bye to your friends and just now it's time to go home. Um, or tell me what you're feeling. I have all day, you know, I want to know. Mm. And to take that really loving pause and curiosity, it can be, you know, a real kind of practical would be you get a text that's a bit evocative and the kind, loving inner parent, self-parent says, okay, I think we have a rule, don't we, about responding, waiting 24 hours to respond, right? <laughs> when, when we get a zinger, so <laughs> let's do that. And then, and also, why don't you open your journal and just, you know, say why that was upsetting or start drafting a response and then see how you feel. And, and I don't, you know, it's a kind and loving inner parent voice. It's not what I'm thinking. Cause what I'm thinking is like, Oh, Ooh, no, you didn't <laughs> like, Oh, let's go. Like, you know, it's, it's this other voice. Um, and it's not one that says, Oh, don't work because you don't feel like it today. It's the one that says like, okay, you're not feeling it. I hear you. And that sometimes happens. And let's just, why don't you grab your laptop and 
cozy, get cozy on the couch or tea or bed, you know, and see how you feel in an hour. Like, so it's not this, um, in the past when I did coaching and worked with people, I think were concerned that they were going to be just soft and letting themselves off the hook constantly and just napping and eating all day if they had a kind inner parent. But it's, I, the voice isn't really, doesn't really work that way. Mm. Once you start cultivating it. I love that as a prompt. I mean, I think we all have many voices, right? That speak oh, to yeah. us. We have like oh, the, yeah. the inner rebel, wild child, and the uh, the oppressor. Yes, and the rule um, follower. Right, <laughs> right, right. So it's just whichever you're choosing to listen to. Well, on a particular right. day. Right. Mm-hmm. I think this book is so help would be so helpful though in sobriety too, you know, and just in the beginning, we're so hard on ourselves. Um, or at least I was um, beating myself up for the past and for all the shame of my actions or what I didn't remember in a blackout or, you know, and, and to, to care for yourself in sobriety is very, um, it's new. It's a new way, you know, and to think about it as a healing, I didn't think about that at first. I didn't have the language for it. Um, I just knew that I felt like I was on fire, you know, uh, for that first year of not drinking. Um, on fire. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Or when people used to come into my shop, I, I, I used to tell my husband, I didn't realize I had anxiety to the level that I had it, you know, until I stopped drinking. I didn't understand that I'd had it my whole life. But I said, I feel like, a raw nerve and somebody is coming in the door of my shop and they're just scratching at it with their fingernail, you know? And so it felt so uncomfortable that I had, I didn't have to, I chose to drink, you know, I just chose to kind of take the edge off of that feeling until I got happy and until I, right, which only exasperates it, but you just don't know that you hang on to that temporary relief. Yeah. That's the solution. Yeah, for sure start the cycle all over again. Yeah. Um, Amy, there's yeah, so much temp- to talk. Super temporary. Yeah. Oh, sorry. There's so much to talk to you about and I don't want to let go of this interview or, or, or end it um, without talking about your journaling practice. That seems like a very big part of your life. Um, can you share a little about, about what that looks like for you or, or, or why that is a method that you've used to kind of um, heal? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's huge. It's something I do every morning. It's part of my morning spiritual routine and it, it takes a lot of forms. It's, it's sometimes a diary. It's sometimes a planning tool. It's sometimes uh, a way to flush emotion. Um, it's a way to um, be, be creative. If I don't have a particular outlet, like a drawing or a story or you know something, I can just write um, an image I saw. Um, or sketch into, uh, or things I want to say to people that I'm not going to say to them. Um, you know, it takes, it takes all of those forms. I try to make sure like, and it doesn't feel like a discipline anymore. Um, the remembering to do it. It's just, it would feel, I would feel off if I didn't. Um, I, it's a, it's a way for me to be someone who's telling the truth mm-hmm. and and to be to be honest and being 
you know, writing down what is true is honoring, is honoring my truth and truth, just truth itself. And I wasn't, that wasn't welcome. That wasn't a part of my self-definition when I was growing up because the don't talk, don't think, don't feel. So it's really liberating to talk, think, and feel. And a lot of that takes place in my journal. Mm, I love that. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask, what is your favorite journal and your favorite pen? <laughs> unless, <laughs> unless that's one of your tools in your toolbox, but I got to know that as a fellow journalist. So, yeah, pens are just like, so I use a, a roller ball. And at one point I did this research, like what's the fastest moving pen? Like what ink? And it's a roller ball. And there isn't a particular, well, maybe it's a, it's like, I don't remember what brand it is. It's the roller, whatever one's the roller ball. And then I found this journalist who traveled a lot in Iraq and he um, had this like waterproof journal and he used this, this pen. Maybe I'll send it. I'll send you what it's called, but, and it's, um, it's a roller ball and it's just, it moves fast. It's great. <laughs> um, journal. Yeah. And journal, you know, it's funny. I, every, every journal, I don't have one that I use. Mm -hmm. I switch it up and I'll go to places like Michael's Crafts or Target, or I'll, I'll always look at thrift shops mm -hmm. um, to see what journals they have. But sometimes it's, it's a large um, like art book style. And sometimes it's a small um, spiral bound where I can flip it over and always take it with me. I tend to do a size that I can throw into a book bag. Mm. I think I've yeah. seen your journal stacked before in an image. I, I, mm -hmm. I think so. And I loved it because it was, yeah, it wasn't just one type of journal. It was kind of all of these beautiful uh, colors and, and different styles. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, that I have, way too. I, I am not, um, uh, I'm not the discriminate journaler. <laughs> I just love to grab whatever, whatever grabs me. I like that they're mismatched and scrappy. Yeah. I, I mean, I have one I do, I do my step work in. I have another where I'm doing some questions, um, reflections on um, food with my sponsor. I have one that's my, my journal, my morning journal. Um, I have one that's my companion to working on a memoir. So it's, it's, they're all, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of them. Occasionally I'm not many. sure which is which. <laughs> yeah, there are five. And it's sometimes I'm like, is this working? But it's, I, I love it. I love paper. I love pens. Just love. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we met for breakfast, um, we both had our journals. We both had our pens. We both had them at the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I loved it. Um, Amy, there's so much to talk to you about and, um, and I appreciate you just kind of diving in today and letting us kind of see where it all took us. Um, I know that you, that at the top of the hour, when we asked you like your journey, I know we kind of meandered down here, but you did go back to drinking for nine months. Um, and then you stopped. Could you just can you, to kind of wrap up or make it kind of full circle? Can you share just briefly about like what that was like and why you finally made that final decision? Um, to remove it. Mm, yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. I, you know, so when I met you at that clothing swap, um, 
we, it was, it was this funny day of excess. And that was during that nine month period Mm. where I was drinking again. And so I have a little, I have, I didn't remember that right away when we met. And then I was like, oh God, that was that clothing swap. So I ended up leaving my, forgetting my bag there, like my purse and had to get a hold of the hostess and then drive out, um, find a time that worked, drive out the next day. I think it ended up being even the next day. My wallet was in there. You know, so it was just like, and we, and we went to another clothing swap later that day. So it's just this kind of like, and we were both thought it was funny and it just, it's a way, it's the way the day aligned. But if I look at it through the lens of addiction, I'm like, hmm, so there's some excess going on there, which isn't really how I now like to live. And the forgetting of my, my handbag and the way I gravitated to the mimosas, it was just like icky. So anyway, so I just wanted to mention that as a kind of like being uh, forthright with you mm-hmm. and how it's a bittersweet memory for me. But it's like that didn't, you know, it was, it, people forget their bags. But for me, it's like, Amy, this is why we don't drink because that wasted, that wasted time. And uh, and I also attempted to have a relationship during that period or had one short relationship and, and it was beautiful in so many ways, but I noticed that I would worry whether or not he would have wine. Like I was going to go over and he was going to cook dinner and I thought, oh, I hope he has a bottle of wine and, and then bring one to be sure. And, 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 and also, and so I just noticed that I, I was distracted by that, like addictions distract. So, so, and at the end of that nine months, I was, uh, the startup I was working constantly around the clock at, uh, the founder decided to end it. So I was let go. And I let go of the relationship. And because of that kind of that bursting and everything blowing up or going away, I was able to see that the way I was eating, which was binging out of control, having food hangovers and drinking, like had that that was a symptom of being way out of balance. And so I was just like, okay, here we go back on the, back on the plan that I know works for me, because guess what? This is evidence that it didn't work. <laughs> and it crept up on me. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm going to start drinking again. It was, it just crept up. It was like it does, you know, where it's just this gradual, like, oh, this, you get this silly little idea. You're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to, we have to have this champagne because we're celebrating the launch of this thing we've worked so hard on. Mm. I'll just have a sip. It'll look good everyone, because everyone else will be, you know, the people pleasing. And, and it just, and then it just, the f- switch got flipped. So um, yeah, I had no business working at that uh, startup in that capacity. Well, I wasn't able to say this is too much. Mm-hmm. And so instead I stuff, I numbed myself in order to endure what wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and wouldn't you say too that even though I know you say they're all connected, of course they are, but just having the clarity from 
you know, not abstaining from alcohol gives you the opportunity to address the other isms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's like you it can does. clear that away first. Right. And then, and then handle some other things that are going on. It kind of can give us that clarity, that lens. It really, yeah, because it's by, by giving up alcohol, I was choosing, choosing a path that is most people don't like choosing because it's, it's incredibly uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable going to gatherings and not reaching for something that would make me feel less anxious, awkward, weird. But the sitting with that awkwardness, <laughs> vulnerability and weirdness gave me, ended up giving me so much because mm. I just sat with it. And you sit with it and you see things and and it builds. Right. And then to come full circle, eventually you can turn it into um you can change the whole story, right? You then it's some then it's a subversive act. <laughs> and yeah. it feels empowering. It is subversive. It's deliciously <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. When you when you walked into that clothing swap, Amy, there was just something um, about your energy, and whether and now hearing more of your story and understanding what was going on for you that day, I didn't notice that you were drinking or having a mimosa, but that was my second clothing swap, and I forced myself to go as a practice to be mm. around women who were going to be um, having champagne. I knew it because I'd gone to the prior one, and the prior one I could only stay an hour. At this one, yeah. I stayed the whole length of it and I stayed with myself and I talked to other people I didn't know, which was you and your friend that you brought, your awesome friend that you brought. And it was all a practice in discomfort and trying to get to this other side. And I think mm. that that's um, like hearing that. I just, I appreciate hearing more about that for you, that day for you. And I just knew, I just knew something drew me to you. And mm. I think that's what happens for me. And it drew me to Sandra, drew me to my friend, Natalie, drew me to Holly and Laura on Instagram before they had their home podcast. Like I've drawn, it's just like seeing someone has what you want and you may, maybe it's not the whole entire thing, but there's something about them um, that I can feel now. And now that I don't anesthetize myself with alcohol, I can act on that intuition. I can act. Right. I was going to say that's part of listening to your gut and just, you know, following your curiosity Mm -hmm. and letting the, letting that voice that's telling you, shushing that voice that tells you, you know, you're awkward and weird and no one wants to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting. Who doesn't want to talk to you? (laughs) They're missing out on. Oh, it's really, oh, yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, yeah, and it's and it's fascinating to talk about that afternoon from these different perspectives and reflecting back on no now knowing what it was for you, mm-hmm. and, and and yeah, and the intuition gets buried when, uh, you know, when I'm using, it's intuition's buried, and I, it's such a gift to live with intuition. It's like it's magical. Mm-hmm. To be like, oh, that's what that, that's that feeling. That's that sense. It's such a guide. Yeah. yeah. In, our, mm-hmm. in the 12-step program that I'm part of, um, the, the promises talk about, you know, we will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And that is yeah. true now. 
without alcohol, I do intuitively know how to handle situations. So it may not happen right away. I have to think about it. Maybe I need to. Right. I'm occasionally baffled. (laughs) (laughs) But we get there. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I have a way to get there now. And that way is to be a little, um, not a little, (laughs) completely sober. Sorry. (laughs) Not a little at all. (laughs) Sorry, listeners. That's not what I meant. Okay. The big reveal. (laughs) Dun, dun. (laughs) to be totally stone cold sober allows me to get my intuition pause make decisions and um hopefully that are for my highest self and uh i regard my highest self now which i i didn't have a clue before um but amy you're you're recovering yeah Yeah. like you did it that that day at the clothing swap yeah staying Mm -hmm. is important um uh, to a point to a point, as much as you can handle, but those little incremental things like we talked about every day that goes by, I, I um, yeah, I stay with myself now more than I ever did. That's for sure. And uh, your work, you know, this has been um, your whole life. You've been working um, on healing yourself, Amy. And I think it, again, your energy and everything, I just, uh, I can see that. Um, it's a beautiful byproduct of your work of how you're living now. Hmm. And I'm grateful to get to know you and Sandra to get to know you and, and the listeners. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really appreciate it. So we have to wrap it up. Um, but we um, do this thing at the end of the show where we have the Unruffled Toolbox. And um, we ask you to share three things, either from your creative toolbox or from your sobriety toolbox or whatever you want to share that's kind of your jam right now and that you would like to share with our listeners. Um, Do you have three tools to share? I do. I do. And, And yeah, I'll think about what categories they fit into in terms of sobriety and creativity. Number one is my journal. And that's for both because I explore both in my, my journal and I can flush emotions and record meaningful interactions and check in with myself. And part for me, sobriety is being um, aware of where I'm at. So that the, I, I don't know how I would do that without my journal, to be honest. And I don't refer back to them. I mean, I do for memoir writing, but I don't refer back. So it's, but it's a way to check in and connect that is essential uh, for both creativity and sobriety. Yeah. Um, it's like, uh, yeah. And then, uh, number two, um, it's meditation, but a couple of specific women whose meditations on, on insight timer is where I happen to listen to them, uh, through my phone, the insight timer app, but the two women, um, have these meditations that for me, are so deeply creative and visual. They're written like poems. And I can use those to shift gears. And if I'm, because I pivot a lot from writing, learning materials to mothering to creative work and writing. And in a perfect world, I would have like an hour to make that transition, but I don't always. So those two women are Pixie Lighthorse who has, and recently I did her um, hawk meditation with hawk. Um, And then also Sarah Blondin, who writes, and her meditations are, she speaks all the way through them. I do other meditations that are just quiet, but these for creativity for me, 
are, are incredible. So Sarah Blunden also, she writes these, they're like prose poems um, and walks through things like, you know, cultivating one's worth. That's mm-hmm. huge. Yeah, she's medicine for sure for me. Yeah. Uh, and Pixie too. Yeah. I, 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 her prayers read like a poem. Yeah. Long form poem, yeah. but yeah. Oh, those are good ones. And what's your last one? So my last one is affirmations. And I, I, it's funny because it feels like it harkens back to, I don't know, the eighties, but I, um, <laughs> and I think I, <laughs> I love that <laughs> Saturday it's night live, true, right? I know it's true, <laughs> but it's, they work. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm smart. I'm beautiful yes. and gosh, darn it. People like me. Right. It's, it's uh, and, and affirmations are so powerful. You know, it's a little bit of like, um, the law of attraction. It's a little bit of, but I, I find, you know, I need to, when my brain falls into a groove on the, you know, the record player, I have to lift the needle and just set it into a new groove. And I know it works and I know it trains my brain over time. So the affirmations are like lifting the needle because I often wake up with anxiety and I look at, and I use it as a tool and I look at like, okay, what are we scared of? You know, and not fulfilling my purpose is usually one of my waking fears. Oh, just some little uh, fear. Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so I, um, and I picked one I'll, I'll share with you. Um, but there, I, and I really, writing the, and each one's like that I read and I don't read them all every day, but I'll look, I'll look at my for today book and look at the, the, the passage for the day. And I'll usually write it down in my journal, maybe, you know, riffed on it a little bit in my own words um, to really soak it in. But the affirmations are, are like that kind, loving parent really. And that's why I'm saying like, I do this book, I do stuff in the book all the time. So, um, because, so the affirmation is, uh, one of them is it's exciting and admirable how I switch from writing creatively to mothering to curriculum writing and can be capable in all. Mm. And the, this has a powerful effect on me because I'm, I have often feared that because I'm a creative person who also has a child um, that, and also, you know, writes for a living that I uh, for a learning company, I, that that I am, that I've sold out, that I'm not really good at any one of that. You know, that's sort of like, I bought into that uh, way back that like, if I really was a writer, I should just like work at a bar and write all day long and not have a career. So for me, um, a mantra or affirmation that that honors each of those and that I can, and the pivoting quickly from one to the next and being capable is has had a really powerful effect on both sobriety and creativity for me Mm, i love that that's a good way to end oh amy what's your website so that people can go and check out your work it is amy eden jollymore.com oh perfect thanks for sharing your story amy Yes, Amy, it was lovely talking to you and getting to know you better. And I know our listeners are going to really love this conversation. I know they are. Mm. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Thank you. This is 
an honor and a treat. And I wish we could do this every morning. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we will every try morning, to see each other when we, when we can. <laughs> I know you're an early yeah. bird like us, right? So yeah, we're, oh, yeah. we're early risers. Oh, okay, well, have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.